this morning I woke up and I haven't had a dream like this in two months now, where as I wake up from the dream, I am stressed, really, really stressed because the dream was really stressful. I dreamt of being in some office space that had a lot of rooms, personal offices. At first, I was there with my children. And I can't remember. I, I've lost that piece of the dream. I don't remember what they were doing, but they were doing something that was stressing me. And I told them a couple of times, hey, guys, stop doing this. This is not cool. This is not our office. These are not our desks. And they kept doing it. And then I got really irritated by that. But I don't remember what it was they were doing. And then I remember that I walked into one and there were like private offices. And these private offices also had, were sort of like bedrooms, right? It's kind of a mix. They had beds in there. And I walked into one of them and there was a woman there that was kind of in bed and she seemed sick and in distress. And I started talking to her. I was like, oh, are you okay? What is going on? And as she was talking to me, I, I was worrying more and more about her. And eventually I saw her arms and she had these self-inflicted cuts everywhere in her arms and her feet. And then I was really freaked out, right? And I'm like, what is going on? What are you doing? You know, what's going on with you? Why are you cutting yourself? And she started basically without saying it, I started hearing that it was implied that it was sort of my fault, like that she was so stressed and in such pain because of something I had done. And I was like incredibly worried about that. And so I'm like wrestling with some type of guilt that I'm trying to unpack. I'm like, you know, I don't even know this woman, but it seems like maybe we're together, but I, you know, it's, it's a total stranger of a woman and she's done all these cuts and I, I, I'm like a little confused, but I'm worried, but there's also guilt there, like guilt, like, oh, I've done something wrong. How can I write this? How can I fix this? And then I go out and my kids are not doing something even worse. Like they want, went into one of the office bedroom spaces, whatever. And they like, they totally destroyed the room. And I got really mad now. Right. And I'm like, scolding them. And I tell them to leave the office and wait outside for me. And as I put together everything, all of a sudden, I am somebody else. Now I'm not in first person anymore. I'm in second person. I'm seeing a person that's cleaning up the room, a man that's... And then the man at the end is so exhausted. He's like, ah, I need a break. I need a quick break. This is all too much for me. And he goes into the bed that he just made and he huddles together like a little baby and just falls asleep. And then I wake up and I know I'm the man, right? The man is me, but sort of I like disconnected and was just seeing it as a, as a third person. And I wake up and I see it's night now. It's really dark. And I thinking, what the fuck? How long have I been sleeping? What's going on? And I get up and I'm like, okay, I need to make this bed. So nobody knows that we were in here and then go out and find my kids and leave here. And at that moment, there's a child coming in that is the child of the man whose office this is. Right. I can just in my mind or in the dream, I can know that now the man and a bunch of people are coming into the office space. And this child walked in and the child scared to death, looks at me and just like screams and runs away. And I I feel terrible. I'm like, oh, my God, now these people are going to come into this office. Who knows where my children are, what they're doing? Why did I fall asleep? And I wake up and I'm shivering. I'm really cold. I'm kind of outside the, the blanket. I'm like really cold. And I feel so stressed right out of this dream. And I make a mental note and I think, all right, there's something to unpack here. I haven't, in two months now, I've not had 
the feeling of stress, not in a dream and not in my day-to-day life, which has been the first two months in my life that I've been stress-free or this stress-free, let's say, which feels really amazing. So the stress of the dream didn't feel amazing at all. I felt like, oh my God, this is how I felt all the time. This is impossible to deal with. I need to like unpack this. And I looked at the at my watch and saw that it was 6 a.m., and I set the alarm for seven and I was kind of battling with me. Should I sleep some more or not? And I tried, I tossed and turned a little bit and I had a bunch of other really messed up weird dreams. And then eventually close to seven a.m. I thought, all right, there's no more falling asleep. I don't feel as rested as I have been the last months in the morning. This doesn't feel quite right to get up, but I feel like I need to get up and like work through this, whatever this is. So I sat down and I wrote down the dream and I thought I instinctively and instantly had this thought of I should do the daily internal family system therapy meditation, which is kind of a 10 minute meditation where you go and you check in on different parts of yours and see how they're doing. Right. And I haven't done I haven't practiced a lot of IFS lately since I've had the silent retreat and, you know, my moment of englowment. I've been walking on such clouds that I have played with a model at times or checked in a little bit, but I would say much less than before. But today I had this impulse telling me there's a part of you. This was not you, you in the core of who you are, but this was a part of you that was battling with something and it needs attention. And so I sat down and I listened to the meditation and I started connecting a little bit deeper with that part that was stressed about certain things and wasn't listened to. So here's the the big realization for me today. I've had this realization multiple times. I keep having it until it hasn't clicked yet. Let's see when it will really fully internalize. But still to this day, when I have an impulse, a negative impulse, a fear, a doubt, anger, something just for a split second, some idea, some thought, it is very easy right now for me to gently puff it away, to just like, you know, hush it away very gently. Just go, we'll trust God, the universe. We'll let things fall into place. Everything is good. And it instantly, these these little clouds that form, they instantly dissipate and there's sunshine again. Like it is very effortless for me to do that. So what do I do? I do that. I do that quite a lot, right? Here, there's a little cloud. There's the little cloud and they just puff away. And I just keep going on my day. It feels good in that moment. But what I realize again is that the formation of this cloud is a trailhead. It's an indicator that if you follow where did this cloud come from, what is its purpose? What does it seek? There's real wisdom and there's real resolve and there's real gold waiting there for you. And when you just puff it away, no matter how gently, no matter how effortlessly, when you puff it away, the cloud is only gaining more heavy, dark molecules and will come back bigger and stronger as a storm eventually. And so Since I've been back in Germany, I have had a couple of tiny little cloud worries. I worried about a family member. I worry a tiny bit about my children. I worried about here and there, this or that person. But these worries were not big storms. They were tiny little clouds. And I was just thinking, well, it's not a problem. I can just let things be and they will fall into place. And it worked in the sense that it accomplished its in the moment purpose, which was my goal was that that cloud goes away so I can get sunshine again, which is just feels so great to feel the sun on you shining on you all day long. That's, you know, that's so nice that when a little cloud forms, I instantly wanted to go away. And then it does. And I feel accomplished, like this is working. But I realized that there is a part in me 
that was forming these little clouds, that was creating these little clouds, that is that worry, that is that fear. And I have more power over myself than that part. So I was able to you know, push it away very easily. But that doesn't make it disappear. That doesn't make it feel listened to and heard. That doesn't integrate really what's going on. It is a looking away from my full truth, right? It is saying weather doesn't exist. Only sunshine exists for me. That is just as big of a lie as saying only rain and cloud exist in my life. Never is there sun or light. That's the same bullshit coin, just reversed into the positive. And so we would assume that that's better. Maybe it is, but it's not truth. It is not my full truth. So I had to check in and actually pay attention. What are these worries? Even if there's a part of me that thinks we don't have to worry about this, there's a part of me that is. Otherwise, I would have never even thought these thoughts or had these feelings. And this dream was my, whatever you want to call it, subconscious or that part of me. It's my psyche or you know, divine intervention, but it's a message to me, there is worry in you and you're not looking. Take a good look. The moment I started looking, a number of things fell into place, not because I wanted these worries to go away, right? That's that's the formula. When you look, look to understand. When you pay attention, pay attention to fully understand. Give love, give patience to yourself, to these feelings and emotions. And they will transform into beautiful blessings. But only if you truly have that intention, if you say, I'm going to turn it into a beautiful blessing by paying attention to it, it's not going away right? because you're not really paying attention. You have too much of an agenda to really openly, patiently listen. And as I was sitting and meditating, I realized some things that part of that worry that I had about some of these people is a polarization internally of mine to another part of me that is the extreme opposite. Again, this is a universal truth I keep coming back to. Anything that is an extreme, even and especially the extremely good things about us, the things we really love, the things we get so much positive reinforcement about, the things everybody applauds us for, everything that stands out so much that's a very big strength of very, will have an equal opposite inside of us hidden that will be causing turmoil. Some of it is because we develop that positive thing to push away that negative, to kill that part of us and say, we're not really that way. It's the, and part of it is that because we, maybe we had this as a natural talent or a natural strength. And so we over-focused on it. We overdeveloped it. And so there's a part of our psyche that tries to generate equilibrium balance inside of us. So it will create an opposite equal. We've talked about a family member of mine that is the most confident that thinks he cannot die. Nothing will ever happen to you. You could tell him, do you want to be the CEO of Tesla tomorrow? And he would say, sure. Like he has zero doubt. Do you want to run NASA? Yeah. Why am I not? I'm not dumber than these rocket scientists. I could run NASA. And he's really bold in all his actions. But funny enough, this is somebody that would proclaim and would believe, and you would believe it too, if you don't know him really, really well, that he is never afraid in life, almost never afraid in life. He doesn't know fear. But funny enough, everyone he loves, all his friends, all his family members, everybody, he's constantly worried about. He's worried that they're going to have a car accident today. He's worried that they, the new job they're taking, they're not going to be good at. He's worried about their relationships not working out. He's worried about all these things. He's constantly in fear for everyone he knows. But for himself, there's no fear, no worries. 
what is this? This is not normal, right? This is, but it's so obvious that you become blind to it if you're the person that's in it, right? So for me, there are parts of me that are very selfish, very self-centered, have been always my entire life, very centered on understanding myself, on developing myself, on thinking about myself. On, like I've been very self-obsessed, not by choice. This is how I was born. I can tell by my children, one is exactly the same way. One is totally the opposite. It's part of my, my spirit, part of my DNA. But there was a part of me when I was a, a child that got feedback that was telling people telling me that I'm a little prick, that I'm selfish that I'm not as good as I could be because I don't think as much about others. And this idea developed very early because my father died when I was six, that he was very different from me. He was kind of a very lovable, calm, quiet guy. And everybody was telling me how much I was like my grandfather, but not like my dad. And everybody was telling me that my dad was the best person they knew. That's a good person. That was kind of the example for this is what a good human is. So I looked at that as a kid and went, if that's what a good human is, and I'm nothing like that, I'm probably not a fucking good human. So I developed this idea early on that I'm actually a shitty person. Like I have a shitty heart. And of course, I didn't want to be a shitty person, have a shitty heart. And I felt really guilty and ashamed of that as a child because I don't have a shitty heart. I'm not a shitty person. I actually have a great heart. I'm a very good person. But I didn't know that as a child. And so I do still today have this part of me that works with extreme guilt and shame as a balancing act to what it perceives at times as too much selfishness, too much confidence, sometimes too much arrogance. It's a part that is creating a balance and or attempts at least to create an, a balance and an equilibrium so that I don't become a terrible human with my arrogance, my confidence, my self-centeredness. If that reigns supreme and alone, it will lead me down to hell, right? It will lead me to a bad place. So that the opposite part of it is using excessive shame and guilt at times to try to rein me in. Now, both these extremes are not awesome, right? Like, I don't want to be a fucking arrogant asshole and I don't want to be you know, ashamed and guilt-ridden, especially in both cases when it's too much and not appropriate for what my life is truly like or what my actions are truly like. But because one part is sometimes extreme, the other is extreme. And maybe you've noticed as I'd love to hear your feedback on this. To me, there's so many areas in life where I'm not arrogant, where I'm actually falsely humble. And then there's some areas where I'm like, I'm pretty fucking arrogant in this in this area. And the arrogance is a little bit more hidden and the humbleness is a bit more present for the people that know me because I open up more on the humbleness side and I hide a little bit more on the true arrogance side. But there is the way that a lot of the balance inside of me has been created over the past 30 years has been by extreme polar opposites fighting each other. And so nothing ever completely takes over. Now, that had its use and usefulness for my life, but it came up with a very, very, very high price tag, which is that I was always tormented. I've always been in, in a war, always, never at peace. And what I'm trying to go through right now on my journey is to depolarize and like bring these different parts of me together into more of a middle and be like, you don't have to be this extreme and you don't have to be that. And we can all be much closer together around the core and we'll be fine, right? We don't have to all run to the extreme opposites of the boat and lay out of the, the boat for it not to, to flip over into the water. Like we can just all come into the middle of the, the boat and be fine together. And that's kind of the journey I'm on. But I never 
realized because I have excessive and I've always had excessive guilt and about things that I shouldn't be guilty about, like things that are not inside of my control that I, I didn't do anything bad. I took such extreme responsibility in my life. Again, that was also too much. I thought it was a good thing. Extreme ownership, right? I own everything, everything that happens in the world, everything that happens to my family, everything that happens to anybody I know. It's all always come back to something I could have done better. There's a use in that, but you can overuse even the best sort, right? And then turn it into a, a device that just caused suffering for no, no purpose. That was also like that. Like you are such a close friend of mine. If you went through a terrible time, there's a part of me that would feel guilty about that, that would take risk because I feel responsible for you. You don't need me to feel responsible, but I do. I just do for everybody that I love and everybody that's within my reach and influence. And it's not helping. It's not making anything better, right? It's nice to have somebody that cares about you, but there's overcaring. It's not nice for somebody to be guilty about the decisions you make. You're not a child. And that's still something a lot has changed within me on these topics, but there's still a lot of work to be done, right? This is not some sort of, this is a thing I developed over, you know, 40 years of my life. It's not finger snapping in three weeks, everything is gone. Even if I can make it go away, if I choose to, easier than ever before. But at what price tag? The price tag that what I'm practicing then is just as untruthful as what I was practicing before. It just seems more pleasant. But the only thing that feels healing and whole, true and fulfilling is the truth. Doesn't matter if it's ugly, bad, good or not. The truth. What is the weather today? If it's raining and dark, going outside and going, it's sunny, it's sunny, let's go out. Like that's not good. There's nothing beautiful about that. Now, if you can look at the rain and see the beauty in it, that's a different thing. But you see the truth. You don't pretend it's always sunshine, even if it's not. That's not better than the person that thinks it's always raining, although it's not. They're both as delusional. And I, I didn't, I've said this many times, I'm still practicing. Maybe this is the time that it clicks. But it was a powerful moment this morning because I didn't realize I was doing this the last two months, right? I didn't realize that when these little worries, worry clouds, that I puffed them away. It just felt to me sort of like natural to do this because now I'm over it. Now I don't need to think this way anymore. And it was so easy to do that. It seemed right to do that until this dream, until I woke up and I was stressed out of my fucking mind. I'm like, what is, what is going on? I have zero stress. Where did this dream come from? Right. <laughs> I sat down, I meditated, and then I found some answers. And at the end, there was such a beautiful internal moment I felt. There's such inner beauty of reconciling some different emotions and different tensions in my body and honoring them and paying attention to them that three minutes later, I was walking in my apartment and I stopped and I had another of these moments where I look around and I take a deep breath and I go, I fucking love my life. I'm so happy. I'm just so happy right now. And I've said this a couple of times since coming back to Germany, but today was the one time that I really meant it. Like it just really overflowed out of me. It was just like, my God, I'm so, so grateful for my life. It was all because of that. Now, this relates, funny enough, to a part of the story of the book, The Last Temptation of Christ, that I'm reading, Nikos Kazantzakis. I have to start practicing this name. This is the author of Zorba the Greek. It's funny that you say you have to, because I assume it's Greek. Of course he knows, for, you know. I never even looked at his name. You believe uh, that? Funny. Like I picked up Zorba the Greek and I never even looked at who the author okay. is. 
never even paid attention. This is the first time I'm reading his name. First time that I'm actually reading his name fully. When I started reading the second book, I thought I should practice his name, but I never said his name out loud. I never like actually try to read it. Nikos Kazanzakis, he's an amazing author. What a fucking legend of an author. And so I'm reading that book, which is started like such a, it didn't start smoothly for me, but now I'm so in love with this book. This is such a great book. This dude, magic. This writing is so good. The way he constructs the story is so good. This is not the real story of Christ. This is basically what happened before Christ shows up in the Bible on the official things. And it's a novel. It's all made up, basically. But, you know, also sort of doesn't feel that way. <laughs> it feels like this is probably, it could have been how the story played out. A lot of wisdom, a lot of beauty in that book. But the first part of the book is just showing you Jesus Christ in insane torment. Like he's just tormented by a million demons, by God, by himself. And he's just this person in tremendous inner suffering, like just incredible inner suffering with all these demons. And everybody despises him. Everybody just doesn't understand what the hell is going on with this kid. Why is he the way he is? Why is he so weird? He becomes a cross maker in that book. And he's kind of, everybody, all the Jews hate him because he's building the crosses to cross the prophets, like all the, the and they're just like throwing stones at him and hate him, you know, and, and, he, and he does all that to spite God because God wants him to do a certain thing and he wants God to leave him alone. So he's trying to be as terrible as possible. So God just F's off and, and loses interest in him. Incredibly tormented. And at some point he can't take it anymore. So he wants to go to the desert to this monastery to just like flee humanity and flee life and finally maybe find some peace with God, right? Because he just can't fight anymore. He's just like at, a, a, at his end. So he goes to that monastery and a bunch of things happen. And there's this rabbi really wise old rabbi that is his uncle that comes to help a different situation at the monastery and then finds Jesus surprisingly there. And they go through a night together where the rabbi is trying to get Jesus to speak. He can tell that he's tormented. He can tell that he's being ripped apart from the inside. And the rabbi has made many people confess, right? To confess their sins many, many times. So this is a man that knows people that carry sin or carry torment and knows how to make people open up and like share and speak it out loud. So he's trying to get Jesus to do that. And Jesus really does want to. He has all this shame and guilt. And he thinks that if he starts speaking like that, that he can't, it's unspeakable, the things that are in his heart. But eventually the rabbi hits a nerve and Jesus starts speaking. And once he starts speaking, he can't stop. And he confesses all these things. And basically he starts confessing that how much of a coward he is and that his only God, his mother, father, and, and, and God is fear. Yes, he's not looking at women, not touching them, not daring to think about it, but not because he doesn't want to. It's because he's afraid. Yes, he's not killing man or doing anything, harming anybody else, but not because it's not in his heart. He wants to harm or kill men, but he doesn't do it because he's such a coward and so afraid. And he just keeps talking about all these guilts. And then there is this, this woman, Maria Magdalena, in this book that turns into a a prostitute that as children they were in love as little children and there was a time where they were one day nakedly laying next to each other and touching each other like children do oftentimes and he carries this incredible guilt that it was that moment that turned Maria Magdalena into a prostitute that made her obsessed with the flesh of man and turned her into this terrible to this person that is this terrible life and that it's his guilt. He made her this way as a child. And then finally, he gets to his biggest sin or the thing that torments him the most, which is that he says, 
he's the devil because he thinks he's a god. And he talks about the story that as a child, there was this gypsy lady that came and she saw that he had a couple of grapes in his hand and she asked him to give him the grapes and she would tell him his fortune. And he does that. And she looks into his hand and starts laughing and says, I see a lot of crosses and a lot of stars. You're going to become the king of the Jews, right? And leaves. And he says that how as a child, he started believing that. And ever since then, he's not been right. He's been hearing this voice telling him that he's going to, you know, he's the, the son of God. He is God. And he's going to do all these great things. And he feels all this guilt <laughs> about being so blasphemous that he thinks he's so special. And like, uh, you know, and as he says that, that up until that point, the rabbi is sort of able to handle all of, yes, you desire women. Yes, you have like hate in your heart. Yes, you've done something innocent as a child and you feel guilt. But then when he talks about how much he thinks he's God, the rabbi is a little like, okay, I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how to handle this. So they sit there in silence dark in the night in the monastery and outside there's this incredible wind that is blowing this is the storm of a wind and they start hearing a hissing there's more and more hissing in the yard outside the monastery and the rabbi opens the door and he sees that the yard is full of snakes and all the snakes are starting to basically you know whatever snakes do when they are when they have sex or when they are whatever the technical ter term is you know they're trying to make eggs and so there's this more and more snakes that are coming into the yard and are kind of into whining and turning into a big snake orgy. And the rabbi turns around, looks at Jesus and goes, my son, do you feel relieved? And Jesus is so in his own little club because he does feel so relieved for the first time in his life. He feels so empty of all. He can see all the demons and he gave them names and he felt like the way, the moment he would give them names, they would flee his body and his soul. Like the moment he looked at them and gave them a name, they were fleeing. And he, the rabbi has to ask him multiple times and eventually Jesus says, yes. And he says, come here, my son. And they look at all the snakes and the rabbi tells him, you just as the snakes, as the, the snakes were leaving, all the sin, all the guilt was leaving your body. Look, they're leaving outside your body and all these snakes have come into the, this is kind of a sign of God that now all these, the sin is out of you and as snakes that have been leaving. And then they finally, like as the snakes are doing their orgy, they leave into the darkness of the night. And that's the moment in the book, at least, where Jesus turns a page and he starts kind of embracing who he really is and what what the voice inside of him tells him to do. And he starts, stops being a coward and starts taking action, getting kind of on his journey. This entire life up until that moment, he was resisting doing the things that his inner voice was telling him, following the path. But that's the moment where he's so freed up. And as I was reading it, I thought it was written really beautifully. But this morning, this has been a couple of days that I was at that part of the book. But this morning, it was it came back to me, I remembered that part of the book. And I, and I thought how true it is and how much it relates to everything that has happened in inner work in the last two years, from internal family systems over the books about emotions and listening to them and paying attention to them over this, when you shine a light on your feelings, on your demons, on your sorrows, on your pain, they get enlightened and you get a chance to understand and you get a chance to reconcile and to love and to accept and to forgive. And then you're freed from the chains that you're self-imposing into your life. But it's only when we look, only when we speak out, only when we give them names that we can stop the torment. And as long as we're not ready to do that, it just becomes this ever more convoluted and complicated, torturous chamber inside of us that 
is leading us to worse and worse outcomes. This morning was just a little example for myself. And this was a tiny little thing, right? It was a few little dark clouds that were easily put away. But then there was this dream. And I've learned over the, the, the years of dream work that I've been doing now to pay attention to my dreams, to not shake them off, to not run away from them, to go, it is funny that I'm so happy, everything is so light, everything is so positive, and I have such stress in this dream. There's a message here. There's something I'm missing that came at night to speak to me, right? To make me aware of it. It made me remember again something I had forgotten. It doesn't matter how small it is. It doesn't matter how fleeting it is. If you have a thought, an emotion, a sensation, it is part of your being, part of your soul, and it requires a little attention. And not the attention it takes to hush it out of your room, to tell it to leave, to tell it it's wrong, but the attention it takes to see it fully. Right, The curiosity it takes to go, huh, I wonder, what is this? Instead of like, ah, what is this? Go away. And then when it goes away, you feel accomplished. Ha, I'm so good. I don't let fear interfere with my life. Well, that fear didn't come from the outside. It's not from the neighbor. It is. It was inside of you. Where do you think did it go back to? You know, it feels like we think these thoughts, they leave the planet or they leave our home and they're outside in the garbage can. Where do they go when we say, hush, disappear? They go back inside our soul, our heart, our body, our mind, our subconscious. They go back inside of us. Nothing has been cleaned out or cleared out, right? There's zero clarity on where it came from and what it really is or what it really needs. And it doesn't matter how small it is. It doesn't matter how fleeting it is. It's always a message. The smaller and the more fleeting, the easier probably to understand, reconcile, to clean up. But only if you are willing to, only if you pay attention. Only if you have a tiny bit of patience, something I didn't have the last two weeks and I didn't even realize. I didn't know. You know, I thought I was kind of unconscious about it, you know, until this burdensome, but also blessing carrying dream I had this morning that made me wake up in a cold shiver and in stress. And that led me down the path of asking what is going on with me right now. So it's also kind of like a, almost like a new toy for you, no? Because I think normally you know i don't know what's going on inside but like from my perception was was never like oh there's a cloud you know whoosh, 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 everything is fine maybe your modus was more like deciding okay this is not something to deal with now or this is not a priority right now i'm going to put it on the shelf of like not to care about things right and then okay it's out of mind but it wasn't this like very light kind of okay it will fall on its place and this and there right? and it is so would you say that's right yeah that's absolutely right yeah Yeah. One, it's kind of cool that you found that. And then two also, and, and you played around with it, you know, obviously. Um, but then two also that you're like, oh, okay, this is, it does what it does, but it's not to, like everything, it's not to be overused, right? Yeah. I think the power of this inner peace that I have been with for, mm -hmm. you know, two months now is that when these things pop up, you know, they're not as scary. They're not as tumultuous, but it's not in the, that because I can push them away, they don't exist anymore. They clearly exist. Otherwise, why are they coming up at all? Mm -hmm. And I think it's in, yeah, in some ways, you know, anytime you acquire a new toy or new true insight or new knowledge, there is a tendency to want to overplay with it, right? To want to overuse it a little bit. It's so like, it's so fun. It's so new. And also there's a, always a hidden hope. Maybe this is the only toy I need now, right? This is going to be the fun thing mm -hmm. forever. This is the thing I'll solve all my sorrows and problems with, which it never is. I could tell after the silent retreat, when I was really walking on clouds, I thought, 
there was a moment where I thought maybe I don't need any of these books anymore. Not the literature, but the, you know, the internal family systems and the um, compassionate inquiry, all the therapy and psychotherapy models that I've been studying. I'm like, maybe all this can now just like puff into thin air and I can just like follow this very simple model that I have now. But then very quickly, a couple of days later, I had this thought, well, these things came into my life for a reason. And the reason was not that they were useless. They were, they, they were all pieces on the journey. And maybe they're behind me now forever, but inside of me forever as well. And maybe there's going to be opportunities in the future to use them again as tools when needed, right? I just might not need right now, feel the need to go as deep into them as I used to. And this is the experience that I have with IFS is that it's still such a blessing. There's still so much to explore and learn, but I'm not in a phase anymore where I'm so, this is the exclusive study, the thing that I do every day. Now I have, I pick it up when I need, or I pick it up at times when I have an impulse and intuition to use that. And it's also part of the way I think about everything in life now. It's kind of permeated into my very kind of map of the world, but I don't feel the desire and need to be reading the books again and again, and to be studying all the videos more and to be doing as much work in it. And that doesn't mean that it's useless or that it will never be useful, or I will never get another phase where I might go super deep into it. We'll see. This will unfold on its own. But yeah, it's definitely never been this way before where I could look at these kind of worries. The kind of worries that I'm describing now is like these gentle little gray clouds. They would have been storms for me before. But I would have just said, as you said, now's not the time or okay, well, this is worrying me. I need to sit down and work through and make some kind of a decision. I would have at times forced a decision, which then also would have not given me the peace. Now I've decided, but I'm not at peace yet with the decision, right? But I'm pretending that there's nothing to think about here anymore. So now it's kind of cool to see clouds that used to be life-threatening storms or like big, scary storms to me and see them as little clouds. There's a there's some beauty in it. There's some power in it that's intoxicating. There's some like, ooh, you know, I'm at a very different place now. But ignoring them or having too much fun puffing them away comes at a price tag, as <laughs> as I just found out. Found out. And it's also kind of dope because sometimes like puffing them away might just be the best. Like whatever, if you have like a great time with a friend, right? And then one of these clouds comes up, right? Okay, that can like interrupt the whole thing, end it, or it can. You know what? This time, let's puff and then deal with it another time. But let's keep celebrating this moment, right? Without being like, oh, no, I'm never going to deal with this again, right? But, you know, okay, let's puff. And, you know, tomorrow or whenever we can get back to this and, and see this is something to, to address. Yeah, there's value in being able to, at times, ignore something or puff it away or say not for now. There's value in that because sometimes maybe a thought like that will pop up at an inconvenient time. But I also think over time, maybe this is never per this is never going to be a perfect balancing act, but I do believe that over long enough periods of time, as you practice more awareness and patience and more caring, self-caring, inner caring for these clouds, for these thoughts, feelings, emotions, there is also trust that is building up, self-trust. And then there's less of a desire for these things to pop up at all the random times and so forcefully and so because there's no inner fighting. There's a trusting that, oh, you know, we can bubble up and we will be heard eventually and we're going to work through this versus when there's very little inner trust from some of your parts, emotions or whatever, then they show up at the least opportune time <laughs> as forcefully as they can you know, and then make it very hard to deal with. So I, so I suspect that as more of this inner work is being done, there's kind of goodwill and trust 
inside of you that's building up and that also kind of softens out the edges of how these experiences or how these sensations materialize within you. But yeah, nothing at the extreme I find to ever be sustainably true. Nothing. Like everything is somewhat relative and, you know, you can use it. It depends. Sometimes this is the right way to go about it. Sometimes something else. It's when you come to and with awareness to every moment that you'll make the best, you'll live the best way. It's never when you make some kind of a rule that you use all the time with no exception, right? Because having this rule has now enabled you to never, ever think about it and to just mechanically act out every moment, which is then a dead moment, right? When you just mechanically act it out, it's not a life. It's not in the moment. It's not lived. So yeah, I used to be a pro in not letting these things show. I might have a worry or a stress, but I'll hold it so deeply inside me that people will not notice or people will not see as easily. At times I did this so well that I didn't realize myself. And when these things tormented me, I was very good at holding onto them and going, I will deal with you later. I will deal with you later. Like I had these two sons that are fighting and you're just holding them on their necks and you're like just in a little bit, but they're still pulling and turning and pushing. And it takes a lot of effort, a lot of energy for you to be holding them with one hand while pretending to live your normal life with the other hand. And this is sort of how it felt to me many, 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 many times. And that was what was right then for me or what I had to go through back then. And now there's there's something new, which is always a big blessing and fun, but still more learning, right? Still more to discover and to figure out.